It is a joy, and it's always my privilege to, uh, to uh, uh, present the scriptures uh, to us as a congregation. And my purpose this morning is to encourage us all to live holy lives, to live lives that we ought to be living right smack dab now. Uh, for the kingdom. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 3 and just over into chapter 4. And our passage is all about realizing who you are and why you do what you do in this life, about our heart, about our attitude, God's design for authority and submission as it affects you and me both in this life. Hopefully we'll learn a couple of things and have some very practical applications as we go through the text. Now technically, my assignment was to unpack uh, the section from 322 to 41, but just so we could have the proper context, um, I've asked Sean Perry uh, to come up and read our passage uh, beginning in 317, even though we were there uh, last week, uh, Sean, if you would uh, read us through from 317 to 41, uh, that'd be great. Good morning, church family. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your master on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Church, hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Great. Thank you, Sean. Let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. Father, you have recorded in your word, revealed true truth for us today, now, for each of us. Help us to hear with ears that hear. Help us to see with eyes that see. Father, teach us by the tutelage of your Holy Spirit. Change us from the inside out, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, here is our outline uh, for today. It's pretty simple. First of all, we're going to talk about everything. Um, because Paul does, like twice, we'll talk about Jesus, we'll talk about you, we'll talk about something called a halakha. We'll look at an underlying theme in our text and an overarching example as well. But let's start where Paul starts with everything, all of life. 
whatever you do in word, you just heard it, but let me, let's repeat. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, verse 23. So look at Paul's theme. What would you say he's saying? He's talking about everything. He's talking about twice in six verses he says it. Whatever you do, in word or deed, that's everything. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Six verses later, he repeats it. Whatever you do, that's everything. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Whatever you say, whatever you do, your words, your deeds, your motives, everything. So let's start here. Why do you do what you do? What, whatever it is that you do. Sometimes I'm not really sure why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, why am I in the kitchen again? Um, and and I, am, I am positive that Rhonda is even less sure about what I'm doing sometimes. Um, but uh, Paul says that whatever you do, you're to process all of life and every part of it in light of his ownership of you and your call to live a holy life, a, 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 a sanctus, a set apart, a, a life that is unto him for his purposes. You're to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything, here's our theme, everything you do, I do in the name of Jesus. So practically, what does that really mean? What does that really look like in my life and in your life? There's a great word uh, that is a Hebrew word, and we don't talk about it much, but we should, because the idea of it kind of explains and profoundly affects all of us who are in Christ, kind of explains this calling and, and how we live as followers. And that word is halacha. You kind of have to cough it out. So, so here we go on the count of three. One, two, three. Halacha. Okay, so it's spelled either with a K or with a C-H-A. And for the Jew, um, both then and now, the halakha is the entire collection of Jewish laws. Uh, it's the big, uh, it's the written Torah, the oral Torah, the Talmud, the Mishnah, various laws, customs that really governed and formed Jewish life. And the halakha is sometimes translated as Jewish law, but more precisely, it really is, is the way to walk, the way to live, the way to behave, the way of walking. In other words, the halakha is the way you, I, uh, the way we are to live our life. And so the law was given to the Jews, and by the time all was said and done, they had expanded it a bit, and they ended up with 650. 13 laws. They had 248 thou shalts and, and 365 thou shalt nots, one for each day of the year, it looks like. So the halakha was the way that you fleshed out the law, the way that you lived it, according to the truth of the law. Now, Jesus was a rabbi, and the followers of a rabbi were called his Talmud or Talmudim. So a rabbi chose his disciples, and he called them. They were, um, to each of, of his disciples, Jesus would have said, follow me, leave your life behind, 
follow me. And uh, that involves the dying to self that we all have heard and hopefully are in the midst of doing. Jesus did not come to be an add-on for your life. Let me say that again. Jesus is not an accessory to your life. Not an add-on. Jesus came and called to be a replacement for your life. That you would jettison your own agenda and take on his. Uh, my life, uh, my way has got to go. As Darren has said, which I love, one of the most quotable things that Darren has ever said. He said a lot of quotable things. Is he in here? He said a lot of quotable things. But, but one of my favorites is one of the shortest. Me gotta die. Um, that is a direct quote, am I right? I mean, is that, is that a misinterpretation? <laughs> So, me got to die, and that's what we're talking about here. Uh, it's, it's time to leave our life and follow Jesus. But to, to, to follow, for a Talmud to follow a rabbi meant a couple of things. It meant not only to know what the rabbi um, knew, but it, it meant to do uh, what he taught and what he did. So uh, that was your goal. If you were a Talmud of a rabbi, the rabbi would walk and you were the Talmud and you would follow him and he would teach. And one of your goals was you wanted to know what the rabbi knew and you wanted to know what the rabbi taught about the scriptures and, and about one thing or another to conform to the way that he understood the law and God's words to think like the rabbi thought and to process truth like your rabbi uh, did. And you'll remember the questions. You remember them from the text. Rabbi, what do you say about this? And Jesus would say, well, what is written? How, how does it read to you? Or you've heard it said that, I, that this is the case, but I say to you. And then Jesus would give his pronouncement. And if you were a Talmud of a rabbi, a particular rabbi, then what that rabbi said was binding on you, wasn't optional for you. It was rather binding instead. So when you, your rabbi made a pronouncement, what he said, well, that's what you believed. You want to believe something else? Well, find a different rabbi. But if your rabbi says this, then, then it's settled for you, period. And that is, of course, um, if you were if you were baptized into the name of a particular rabbi, you were a Talmud of that rabbi. Um, and that is, of course, what it means to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's not a verbal formula. That's not a magic phrase that somebody has to say with the proper word sequence when someone gets baptized. But rather, to be baptized into the Lord Jesus is, is, is to say, I am now under the legal, the moral, the spiritual authority of the rabbi Jesus. Now, in addition to that, in, in addition to wanting to know what the rabbi knew, you also, uh, if you were a Talmud, you wanted to become like the rabbi was. To know what he knew to believe those things he said, but also to be like he was, to take on his demeanor, to act and interact with people the way he did, to respond like him in every situation, to reflect him in a very real sense. 
Um, I can imagine the disciples saying, and I, I've, I've just tried to think what it was like, but I can imagine them saying, you, you remember when that little girl, you remember that one little girl, and, and when, she, when Jesus came up and she was crying, he cried? I, I, I want to be like that. You remember when Jesus just shredded the Pharisees because they were so proud and I want to be, I want to feel the way he felt when that happened. Um, and so Jesus said to his Talmud, um, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. So it's good to know, but the goal is to do, to be like our rabbi, Jesus. And if we don't do, are we really his followers? Or do we just know some things about him? That should keep us up at night um, as we seek to be allegiant to him in Every part of life. So with all of this in mind, remember what Jesus taught about the way to walk. You'll remember it immediately. I am the... Jesus is saying, I am the halakha. I am the truth. Follow me. Take my yoke. Walk with me. Walk like I walk. I am the halakha, the way to walk. Um, so, uh, of course, Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments and follow my example, live the way I show you to live. You want to read Jesus' words, read the gospel. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But he taught you how to live and he showed you there, uh, recorded in the gospels, how to live. But if you want to read uh, more of the practical halakha of Jesus, the practical living out, well, that's what the rest of the New Testament is. The New Testament, the letters uh, from, from Paul and Peter and the rest, those are telling us practical ways to live out the halakha of Jesus. And so we could, you know, we could even use a modern analogy, um, and I never really thought of it like this. I hope this works. Uh, maybe it'll help us think of this a little bit more clearly. Think of a GPS. Think of maps on your phone or in the car. Uh, our dear friend, uh, Winnie Laughlin, Steve's wife, gave me a cartoon years ago that I completely love. Makes me laugh every time I see it. Should be up on the screen now. Moses with the people of God in the wilderness looking at his GPS. Huh, arriving in 40 years? That can't be right. How many times have you talked back to your GPS? Um, but uh, so in our day, uh, not Moses, uh, we have a destination, we have a desired goal, a place you want to go. So you enter the destination in your device. You hit go, and what happens? You get turn-by-turn -turn steps to get to your destination. You get speed limits. Some apps give you warnings of, of what's ahead, danger. If you, uh, and even if you make a wrong turn with your app, what will it do? And 400 feet, turn left. I don't want to turn. I turn it off. I'm going to Wendy's. Um, so 
you know, you get updated instructions. Whatever you do, sometimes you don't want them, but they're there for you. And if you follow those updated instructions, even if you make a mistake, you're going to get to your goal. Well, that's what Paul's writing. It's what the Spirit has given us to get us to the destination of being like Jesus. If that's really our destination, and we goof, we make wrong turns, we err massively, we're the best at that. But there's always a corrected course, and that is the halakha of Jesus, and it's written in the New Testament letters. So uh, with these moment-by-moment instructions, we, our goal then is to follow the instructions of the excuse me, scriptures and to leave the affections of this world behind, to be allegiant in everything we're called to do, to be conformed, to be like his, to be, to be like he is. Brothers and sisters, the goal of the Christian life is not, as has been eloquently said in this pulpit before, it's not knowledge only. It's conformity with Jesus Christ. It is that the Talmud act like, be like, think like, live like, jettisoning the agendas of this world for the sake of the kingdom. And so uh, Paul writes in our passage how to live as a follower under the authority of Jesus. Whether you are a wife, a husband, a child, a father, or a slave in our passage from 17 to 4, one, everything in your life in my life, needs to be lived out in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Every word, every motive in your heart, every emotion, every thought, every attitude, every deed, every desire, shaped by, transformed, everything yielded to and conformed to his agenda for your life and mine. So you're to take captive every thought. You're to set no unclean thing before your eyes. You're to love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. You're to flee immorality. You're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You're to let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. And on and on and on. Brothers and sisters. Those are not optional memory verses. Those are for you. Those are for me. You don't read a thing that your rabbi declares and say, no thanks, that's hard. Uh, sorry, that just kind of came out. Uh, that's you, not me. I was emulating you. <laughs> so um, anyway, if you are in Christ, you are under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. You want a different path? Find a different rabbi. But if you follow the rabbi Jesus, you are under his authority. And your calling, let's face it, let's say it. Our calling, our goal is a high calling. It's a lifelong calling. It's an every moment holy calling. It's not an easy calling. But brothers and sisters, there is a power at work in you which is sufficient to supply you, to keep you, and transform you as you die daily to your 
to follow Jesus instead. You know the verses. These are the things we hang our life on. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. The power at work in you is the power of the sovereign almighty who spoke creation into existence. The power of God at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It's everything you do. Yes, it's everything you do. And it's everything that he is doing in you so that you might walk in the halakha of Jesus. So um, let's look at another underlying theme in our text. And that's the theme of authority and submission. We've already hit on it a little bit. But remember the flow of Paul's words to the Christians here. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your station in society or in life, you are under the authority of God. And as a Christian, you're under the authority of Jesus as master, as authority over your life. So live accordingly. That's the message. But we live in a culture um, that's not... uh, Friendly to that, uh, wherein individuals pride themselves in being subject to no one, thinking of themselves as autonomous, a law unto themselves, being my own authority, being the master of my fate, the captain of my soul, which is a lie from the pit of hell. Uh, but the idea of being under the authority of someone, anyone else, isn't a to the modern ears but you and I are not autonomous autonomy or autonomous self-law where you're only under your law your own law and rule that's a fantasy everyone wants it maybe but no one really experiences it that was the lie of the garden You're not under his authority. You're under your own. It produced the rebellion that now is. So the concept of authority and submission is baked into our reality. God has woven that principle and the warp and woof of the structure, the fabric of his creation. You are under the authority of God. All men and women, all men and women, not just us as a body, not just his sons and daughters, all men and women are always, always have been, always will be under the authority of a sovereign creator, the one who orders reality and who declares what is actual and true reality, where the bedrock of reality rests. And by the way, it's not the self-determined, self-centered self-actualized reality that many in our Western culture would devise for themselves today. It is the authority of God's word to us. Brothers and sisters, no charge for this, it's off my notes. Um, But but I was thinking this morning, uh, sitting there, if, you know, that we saw a thing on SETI the other day, the search for extraterrestrial, you know, they have satellites, beep, 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 trying to find messages, communication. It, you can bet if, if 
if they decoded a message from somewhere, would that be on the news? Would, ever, would, 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 would communication from an alien source, alien to this world, would that, would that make the news? Would you read it? Would you wonder what they said? Brothers and sisters, think about it. You take it for granted. The sovereign who has created it all and sustains it by his powerful word has revealed himself to you in the book. This is a personal, no one forced him to, but, 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 but by the in, in, inward intent of his heart, he intended to reveal to you who he is, how he has created, why things are the way they are, why you are the way you are. And yet we say, you know, I just don't seem to be able to read very much. And so, again, I don't know where I am in my notes. This is the danger. I told Rhonda I would say whatever I felt like saying, even if it meant going off, off track. And I did it. And now I have no idea where I am. Um, so, <laughs> so you and I are under the authority of God's words, the Bible, to do what God indicates for us in the scriptures, to be what he indicates for us. So, in addition to being under authority, you and I, sometimes we also exercise authority as well. So sometimes at the same time, you're under the authority and you are exercising authority as well. And, and in the scriptures and in life, there are a couple of different kinds of authority, inherent authority and delegated or granted authority. And of course, inherent, in, inhere, inherent authority is uh, authority that is uh, um, resident only in God over his creation. God owns and has absolute authority over his created order. Uh, reality was created by him, sustained by him, subject to him. But then we see in the scriptures that God delegates authority he gives men and women authority to exercise over others. It's by his good design. And in this world, you, me, actually everyone else, uh, even kings and rulers, live under authority at some level. So the question is, how will you respond under authority? Either under the inherent authority of God. How will you respond when called to be under the inherent authority of God, that, that's one. But then how do you respond when an authority exercises power over you? A delegated authority. Uh, how do you respond there? And that's one of Paul's primary topics. So how will you as a wife respond to the delegated authority God has ordained for your husband? How will you as a man Respond to the inherent authority of God over you. How will you as a child respond to the delegated authority given uh, by God to your mom or dad? How will you as a slave, slave to Christ, respond to the authority of the master over you? And then how do I exercise authority if God delegates me authority? How do I need to change to do that rightly? So um, with this as a... As a, as a bit of in, introduction and context, let's pick up where I was supposed to start. Um, in verse 22, where my passage um, is slated to begin. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. 
fearing the Lord. Let's deal with that word slave that Paul uses here. Because in our day, slave brings us to a minefield of emotional, hot-button issues, history, pain. It's a volatile word for sure. But brothers and sisters, there is no need to be afraid of any word or any concept the scripture deals with. So let's look at slavery in Paul's day and see how his hearers would have received his words and how we should receive his words as well. We'll also look at some of the ways you and I are referred to in scripture as slaves. Since I'm not an expert um, in much of anything, but especially in this topic of slavery and history, I gathered some quotes from people way smarter than me uh, in the hope of painting a, a, a better picture, a more accurate picture of first century slavery so that we can understand. Slavery in the Roman Empire took a wide range of forms, some of which were barely comparable with the forms of slavery later practiced in the Americas or the Arab world. Most doctors were Greek slaves, many slaves were educated scribes, and some household slaves in important homes managed estates or wielded more power than most free persons. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not ethnically based. Romans were happy to enslave anyone. Slavery in the ancient world had practically nothing in common with slavery familiar from New World practice and experience in the 18th and 19th centuries. It would distort the interpretation of the Bible to impose such an understanding on its books. There are significant differences between the slavery of 1700s British imperialism and that of the first century Roman world. Most significantly, Roman slavery was not racially defined, such that first century slaves were generally indistinguishable from free men, both in physical appearance and in dress. Moreover, Roman slaves often had the opportunity to earn their freedom, eventually becoming citizens and even masters themselves. Additionally, the slaves of a good master enjoyed a stable and relatively comfortable life, and the slaves of important people often possessed a certain degree of their own prestige and influence. Though Roman society never viewed slavery as the ideal, the institution did not generally carry the same stigma that is associated with the 18th century slave trade. In the larger cities such as Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, and Antioch, as many as one third of the population were legally slaves, and another one-third had been slaves earlier in life. In Rome, roughly one-fifth of the empire's population were slaves, totaling as many as 12 million at the outset of the first century A.D. We shouldn't read Paul's instructions to be sl to slaves in light of typical forms of slavery in the Americas or the traditional Arab world, but in light of the specific forms of servitude that members of his audience experienced. So slavery in the world of Greece and Rome was just a, a given. It was a primary, it was a functional, it was an accepted part of the structure of society. Uh, and the working world, it wasn't racially based. You could be a slave if your people were conquered by an invading nation and you were taken into slavery as a result of, of that conquest. In Roman times, most people were slaves because they were born into slavery. Some were slaves to hard labor or to die as a gladiator, but many were household slaves taking care of 
uh, children, managing the home, administrating business for the, uh, for the master. And in biblical times, you could even, you know this from Jewish history, you could um, uh, commit yourself to slavery to, to pay off a debt that you owed. Think of how many times Jesus used illustrations likening us uh, to slaves, slaves to our master. So what can we really relate, what Paul's saying, what can we relate this to in our day, in our own lives? Some have likened slavery, and this I'm just repeating what, what I saw. Some have likened slavery in those days being similar to military service where you surrender your freedom in order to serve and you're, you're taken care of, uh, but your freedom is not your own anymore. Your life, your time, your agenda is controlled by another. Uh, some have likened uh, Greco-Roman slavery to not too different from employers and employees in the contractual uh, basis of that relationship. We might relate it, of course, to our work lives where an employer pays us money and buys our time, buys our skill, buys our agenda uh, during our working uh, time with them. But whatever we do, let's not soften it and, and let's be very clear. Sinful mankind has always and will always corrupt societies, cultures, and relationships, and sinful men and women will always corrupt for their own sinful desires to their own evil ends. The Bible clearly and repeatedly condemns slavery, as we saw it in the British Imperial, American Colonial, and Arabic history. The scripture has always and will ever teach that all men and women of every race, of every society, are created by God and they are of equal worth, significance, and value because each of them, why, are made in the image of God himself. Scripture has always condemned what we would call chattel slavery, slaves as property. Listen to Exodus um, condemn this, uh, the unlawful taking of a man and selling him or possessing him in that wrong way. Exodus 21, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. The Scripture's serious about it. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul includes in slavers those who would, would uh, like slave traders, those who would take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. Paul includes in slavers in a laundry list of, 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 of men and actions contrary to the gospel itself. But though the Bible clearly condemns slavery in these forms, that's not the context in which Paul was writing to the people. Slavery in whatever century it has ever been practiced took on then and takes on now horrific, evil, unthinkable, ungodly, unconscionable forms in those days and now. But with that clearly being said, hopefully, Jesus came um, to free the captive. 
And whether that's physical slavery or spiritual slavery, Jesus came that men and women who are slave in any day and age might be free. He quoted from Isaiah regarding those under spiritual uh, slavery uh, in Luke 4 is the quote from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord, this is when Jesus went to the synagogue at uh, at. Uh, at Nazareth, and he, you remember, he was seated. They gave him the book, and he found the place where it was written in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release for the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But let's also observe that the early church saw themselves often as slaves to God, slave to Christ. They referred to themselves that way. Paul, Romans 1, uh, Paul, Romans 1, Paul calls himself a slave to Christ. First verse, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. Listen to these early church fathers. They made it clear. Ignatius saw himself as a fellow slave of Christ. Second century, Polycarp wrote that we should serve as God's slaves in reverential fear and truth. In the 4th century, Chrysostom wrote, In the things that relate to Christ, both slaves and masters are equal. And just as you are the slave of Christ, so also is your master slave to Christ. So the scripture uses slavery to describe the Christian and the Christian life. And think how many parables, think how many times Jesus used slaves in his stories, in his parables uh, to illustrate uh, us being slaves. So, but here's the question. When you read the parables, when you hear the parables of Jesus, and by the way, we're getting ready to go into a, a series on parables that I think is going to be great, and, uh, and I know you all will too, but when you hear him say these things, do you think of yourself as a slave? Can you say that? Am I slave to Jesus for the accomplishment of his will? You, do you remember he said you've been bought with a price? Do you, do, you, do you live that way? Do you live like you've been bought with your price? Do I live that way? The, the, the word that we translate, um, uh, let's just comment on this. Doulos is the, the word that appears in scripture which describes our calling. Doulos, and you've heard the word before, it's, it's not uncommon. It's used more than a, over 120 times in Scripture, and in many translations, it's translated as bondservant. Sometimes, more accurately, it's translated as bondslave. But frankly, the full-strength translation of the word doulos, which describes us, is slave. It's not bond slave. It's not bond servant. Those seem kind of optional, especially the word servant in our mind. We would like to fancy ourselves as willing servants, but that's really a softened translation where one service, where what we do is, is, is completely optional. Let me read you just a couple of things and then we'll move on. Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says the word group doulos used exclusively either to describe the status of a slave 
or an attitude corresponding to that of a slave. Listen to this insight, and I, I really appreciate this. Uh, this is an insight from the translators of the Holman Christian Standard. Now that's the Christian Standard CSB Bible about the word doulos, often translated as bondservant. These are their words. The strong Greek word doulos cannot accurately be accurately translated in English as servant or bondservant. The HCSB translates this word as slaves, not out of insensitivity to the legitimate concerns of modern English speakers, but out of a commitment to accurately convey the brutal reality of the Roman Empire's inhumane institution as well as the ownership called for by Christ. Frankly, one of my life verses refers to me as a slave. And I know for many of you, I'm telling you what you already know, but, but sometimes we don't really think about the things that we know. And, and one, of, one of the verses I love, Matthew 24, 45 to 46, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. That's all I want to be. That's all I want to do. Luke 17, 10. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, would to God that would be true of me. So you also, when, when you have done everything you have been told to do, you should say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done our duty. Brothers and sisters, this is compelling for our lives. When Jesus said, follow me, and you said yes, was that just for redemption and the lordship of Christ was optional for you? Because sometimes I think that's the way we see it. But allegiance to the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Christ is not optional. For us in any day and age. Paul's words in verse 22 are not so much about the idea of slavery as they are about the attitude, aren't they, of those who are slaves. The attitude with which they are to serve their masters and their lords. Remember that um, uh, we who have been rescued from slavery to sin, remember we were once slave to sin. Is it a bad thing to be slave to Christ? Uh-uh. Um, and so, uh, remember Jesus' words from John 15, no longer, and this is encouraging. So we've been, this is, that's, well boy, that's kind of hard. It is, I get it, but nobody says it. So we need to hear it. This is hard news for us. It, it, it comes against us. It stands against us at every selfish turn of our selfish heart. Okay? But the fact is, we're going up from here. In, in John 15, no longer, no longer, Jesus' words, no longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friends. Wait, there's a transition. Galatians 4, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir to God. Think about it. Gladly, you and I are slave to Christ Jesus. 
He calls us friend. We are adopted sons and daughters. We're no longer enemies, now friends of God and heirs of God with an inheritance to come from slaves to heirs of the kingdom. What kind of glorious truth is that? Think about it. That's not, that's not just religious stuff. That's you. If you are in Christ, you were once slave to sin, and now you're heirs of the kingdom? Uh, it, 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 it boggles the mind. So whether you're under the authority, uh, um, uh, let me back up just a minute. I got off track. Um, why, why, why? Here's our next question. Why, why, why do you do what you do? Whether you're under authority or whether you're exercising authority. Why do you work? And some of you are going, I don't really know. Um, well, remember who you are. You're made in his image. You're created in his image. Remember the creation mandate, Genesis 2. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. And, over. and so that is your mandate, to be as God was creator. Um, you are to be creative and to rule over the, crea uh, the creation that he puts you um, where he puts you. Listen, God is the ultimate expression of any and every human ability, of everything good, and he is all of that in an infinite way. He is the ultimate. The sovereign is the ultimate creative. He is the ultimate engineer. He is the ultimate botanist. He is the ultimate accountant. He is the ultimate teacher, the ultimate chemist, the ultimate philosopher, the ultimate... You get the idea. Whatever you are, if called by him, he is, the, he is the ultimate expression, the perfect expression of that. So why did he make you? Why did he give you the gifts and abilities he gave you? It was to reflect his nature in the doing of what he calls you to do, whatever it is. So why did he save you? I mean, you know this, but let's call it to memory. Why did he save you? Remember Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For, and you know the verse. And this is the most encouraging verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. The sovereign went ahead of you, has prepared things for you to do. He's called you. He's gifted you. He made you. He saved you for this. And now you're on the playing field. Now you are deployed for the glory of God. Um, and so it is time for you to live that out. Yeah, you, you work to earn money. Uh, and, and food and all the practical reasons, but you work to reflect him, to respond to others the way he does. You work for his glory. Um, I don't really want to know if I'm running short on time or long. Um, so I'm going to go through this real fast. Um, the time of the Reformation. 
Let's put that from 1400s to the 1600s. It was a time of extraordinary biblical understanding, comprehension, I would say. One of the changes in biblical understanding during the time of the Reformation was in the Reformers' understanding of work, the why of work. Certain callings or certain fields had always been considered prestigious, law, governing, ruling, but lowly callings were filled by lowly people who were of lesser value and worth. So what's a vocation? And so we talk about work, we talk about vocation, we ask, what's your vocation? We're usually saying, what do you do? But that's not really what the word means. And I would ask you, what is your vocation? Now let me explain what that means. Our English word vocation comes from the Latin voco, vocare. You can hear it now, can't you, vocal? Uh, Vocation is literally the calling. The calling with which you have been called, and calling comes from God. So this concept of vocation as a calling is way, way bigger than just I work to earn money for food or for monetary reward. Vocation isn't something you have to endure in order to get money to survive. Scripture clearly teaches that men and women are created to work for the glory of God and called for him to work for him. So vocation then is your calling at the present time for the glory of God. Though men and women may assign different levels of prestige to various vocations, it's not that way. And the reformer said, no, in God's design, the value of a man or a woman was found in the heart, in the attitude, in the intent of the worker, not in the tasks. And that was a big difference in that day and age. Uh, In light of this, Stephen Nichols writes, All of our work, whether a noble profession or a menial task, should be seen in light of our role as children of God. To Luther and the other reformers, all work and all the roles that one could fulfill were potentially holy callings, which could be fulfilled for the glory of God. It's a revolutionary but biblical uh, view. So, do you get it? It's the heart, it's the purpose, it's the diligence, it's the perseverance, the excellence, and the motive for God's glory that measures the worth of your work. Historically, that's called the Protestant work ethic, and it understands that all work, every vocation, every calling, all work has value if done for the glory of God. Prior to the Reformation, that was not the case. It was important callings for important people and lesser callings with lesser people. Biblically, there are no little people. There are no lesser people, people without much significance. There are no little callings if that calling is from the Lord, only different callings but the same Lord. So why do you do what you do? That's where we started. It should be because you're called to do it. Say, I'm not sure I'm called to to do what I'm doing. Make sure you're doing what the Lord has called you to do. Ask him. His arm is not too short to show you. So from our passage, wives, we might imagine the Lord saying this from the passage we read today. The Lord might say, at this point in your life on earth, I have called you to be a wife. In heaven, there's no marriage, but on this earth for a time, your vocation, your calling from me is to be a wife, maybe to be a mom. 
And so here's how I want you to do that. Here's the way to live. Here's how I want you to walk. Yeah, rest in me, but don't rest until you reflect me. I'll be with you. I'll be in you. I'll help you. I'm sufficient for you. Husbands, he might say, I'm your creator and I'm your redeemer. I'm the one with all authority. But for right now, I have delegated authority to you to blessedly lead and love your wife and family. Son, this is your calling from me. And if you do this well, you'll reflect me. Because this is what I do for the earth and those who dwell in it. Yes, rest in me. But don't rest until you reflect me. Children, slaves, masters, this is how I want you to live. So your calling doesn't matter as much as the reason for which your calling is done, the heart for which it is done. One man understood this clearly, at least many have, but you'll know this one. For any and all who know much about the life of one of the world's greatest and most extraordinary composers, Johann Sebastian Bach, you'll know Bach understood this idea of vocation and calling, didn't he? At the end of his compositions, Bach wrote three letters, SDG. SDG stands for Soli Deo. Gloria, to God alone be the glory. SDG is how he signed what he did, what he wrote. He did that to make it clear why he wrote what he wrote, why he did what he did. Let's make that personal. How do you sign what you do? Could you sign everything you do with SDG? Could you sign every phrase you say? Could you assign every motive you have? Could I? On my best day, I wish. But it's got to be the goal, brothers and sisters, that we're running for, that every part of our life reflects the glory of God. So Paul says we should do all things literally from our soul, and that's our aim. So uh, one last biblical example did the Lord put Joseph, you remember our, our study in Genesis, we ended that, Genesis 50 with Joseph and, and something Joseph said. You remember the story of Joseph t- taken as slave and, and then um, uh, raised to an extraordinary level in Egypt. Did the Lord put Joseph where he was? Even when he was in the pit? Even when he was a slave? Yes, he, he did. The path that the Lord put Joseph on was neither expected nor desired. You can relate this to yourself. But Joseph lived each day in the understanding that God had ordained, eventually, in the understanding that God had ordained or ordered his way. That God was sovereign and that Joseph's life was secondary to the purposes of God. Let me repeat that, that Joseph's life was secondary to the purposes of God. Do you understand that? Do I understand that? That the life God has given you is incredibly valuable. But your life is secondary and subordinate to the intended purposes of God in this world. You are not the center of reality. 
God is. And the sooner we remember that on a daily basis, the better off we are. The end of Joseph's life, he saw, uh, he looked back on his early life of slavery. He saw clearly the Lord had ordered his life. And and you remember what he says right at the end of, of Genesis. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant this for good. That many would be kept alive as they are today. Your life, brothers and sisters, is for the purposes of God. Listen, this life is going to end someday for each of us. How you lived here, your heart, your words, your attitude, the way you worked, the way you served, the way you led, the way you followed, this life the days you are now living, it, it, this is the proving ground of your life, if you will. The Lord might say to us, son, this life that you're now living is your opportunity to reflect my glory. This is, um, and, and, and I've said this before, this is the best way I can explain it. You're in the game now. Play hard now. These are the days I've given you. This is the only time you have to show that you understood me. So, so, so run and run hard and run with distinction and run with my help. This is your opportunity to exercise your gifts for the praise of my glory. Mom, you think it's mundane what you do? You think it doesn't matter? Remember, this is right now your high calling in Christ. This is your vocation from God right now. Husbands, fathers, you see the the calling of the Lord. And the Lord might say, son, do you see that this is my calling of you right now? To lead your wife, to love your wife, to lead her like and love her like Christ loved the church. Because you're imaging me. You're representing me and your family. I've given you the authority to do that. So love and encourage and build up and sustain and provide. Masters and employers, you see your role in exercising authority for the benefit of those under you. Like I exercise my authority for the benefit. I am a beneficent God. I exercise my authority for the benefit of those under me. Masters, do you do that same thing? Employers, do you do that? Every role here exemplifies God. Last point. But what about a slave? How does a slave exemplify God? I am so glad you asked. Because we come now to the overarching example for us all. The example that Jesus left for us in his life. Jesus lived the one perfect life. Not only free from sin, but complete in righteousness. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then Jesus, the possessor of all authority, submitted surrendered to the will of God the Father. So should we. You remember his words. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I want to live like that. 
I know you do. You wouldn't be sitting in a church on a Sunday morning unless you took these things seriously. But do we really seek first the kingdom of God? Brothers and sisters, one of my, one of my purposes for today was to be encouraging. And I wrote it on my notes and I said it to my wife that I wanted to encourage people. I didn't want to beat people over the head with things they should do. I wanted to encourage them that the power of God is at work in them. But brothers and sisters, let us be encouraged that we have another day. We have, we have another day to, 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 to live our life for his righteousness. You say, I don't seek his righteousness all the time. I haven't completely died to my agenda. I haven't completely conformed to his will. Join the club. But, but Jesus has called us and given us an example that we might follow him. And we're going to end with, with, with the, the perfect example, which I think is Philippians 2. And, and you'll know where I'm going with this. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How can a slave exemplify God? God the Son, eternal in the heavens, Possessing all authority and all glory, subjects himself as a slave for the accomplishment of God's will. If being transformed, if being conformed to the image of Christ is really your desired goal, if Christ-likeness is, is, is where you intend to go, then it needs to be always ever-present in your thinking, in your mind as where you're headed, your intended destination. It's the finish line to which you're running. And in our passage, Paul is telling us how the Lord would have you live, how he would have me live. This is the way we should be, to live like our Lord Jesus. So brothers and sisters, with Jesus as our example, let us set our face toward increasing holiness and surrender to him that he might continue his work in us so that with his help, we each and all might live to the praise of his glorious grace. So now we're going to sing a song, fittingly, a song of surrender. You know, a lot of you have known these things for a long time. It was, used to be common, something that was called rededication. The invitation would be for those who have never believed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But those of you that have believed, it's time to re-up. It's time to rededicate. This is an arena in which we all need to take the knee and rededicate to him. So uh, I would say to those who are already his, ask him, 
for a renewed heart. But for those who have not surrendered to him, I would ask you to follow this Jesus, believing on him for everlasting salvation, relying on him in this life. So if you would respond, I'd like to have us all stand. And if the prayer counselors and uh, uh, pastors and and, uh, prayer counselors would come forward, let's go ahead and sing.